Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Vandalia, Michigan campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. As always, it is great to be here, and it's nice to uh, be here uh, as part of our series that's continuing uh, in the book of Acts. And so I was here a couple of weeks ago, and uh, those of you who were here uh, might remember that we started this series in the book of Acts, looking at the events of Acts chapter 1 and also uh, Pentecost, the birth of the church and uh, Peter getting up and explaining the events of Pentecost. And uh, we saw that 3,000 were added to the church on that very first uh, day of the church. And we see that people responded to the gospel message that Peter preached. Well, one of the things I mentioned when I was here last time is that the church is uh, is not the, the building that we meet in. The church uh, is uh, the people who meet in the building, and that's our focus. But even more than that, the church is God's people called together for a particular purpose. God's people, when they are called together for a particular purpose, constitute the church and constitute a local congregation. And if the church as the people of God call together for a purpose, the question then is, what's the purpose for which we are called? And the purpose for which we are called is to bear witness to Christ in the world. We are, as the church, to bear witness to Christ in the world. And this morning we want to continue thinking about what does it mean to bear witness to Christ in this world as the ministry of the church. And we're going to continue in Acts, and we're going to look at three different chapters in Acts, and we're going to look at specific passages within those chapters. We won't read all of those three chapters, but we're going to look at some specific examples of ways that the church can bear witness to uh, Christ. And we're going to look at three different cities or three different um, situations in which we see the church, and, and specifically Paul, the apostle, bearing witness to Christ. And we're going to look at when he was in Philippi, when he was in Athens, and when he was in Corinth. Because we can learn things from each of those three different chapters and three different examples from Scripture of how to bear witness. So one of the uh, things we've been doing this year is the, is the three journeys, as we talked about last time. The first is the inward journey. The second is the upward journey, and we're on the outward journey. And that inward journey is we uh, deal with a lot of the uh, issues in our life that may be uh, hindering our relationship with God, and we want to minimize you know, things like greed and envy and lust and anger and all of those things, and we want to grow in the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. That's, that summarizes the inward journey. And the upward journey are really studying who God is, our connection with God as we look to him and as we learn who he is. That's an essential part of the Christian faith. And now with the outward journey, this last part of the year, we are looking at what does it mean to take the message of the gospel outward. And last time I shared that one of the great tragedies of the Christian life is that we are in relationship with God, that we have entered into eternal life and we inherit all of the blessings of the kingdom and we are tempted to keep it all for ourselves. And we don't give it away. We don't share the message of the good news as Christ calls us to. 
so this outward journey really is trying to help us think through as a church and as individuals, what does it mean to uh, fulfill the great commission call of Christ in Matthew 28 to take the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth? And what's our part in that? Well, one of the... uh, One of the things that's perhaps tempting to think about when you are setting up a church is to think about, how are we going to do outreach as a church? In what way are we going to set up our church so that we can do outreach? And for a lot of churches, uh, they say, well, if we're really going to witness well, we need to create a hospitable Sunday morning environment for people to come in so they'll feel welcomed, and that's very important. And they'll say, you know, if people have kids, we need to make sure that the kids feel well. We need to have really great kids ministry, and that's also good. We're going to have to have youth ministry that's really, that's really good, too, to help encourage people as they are young people to grow in their faith and to make that transition from adolescence into young adulthood and into their adult lives. All of those things are really important. But one of the things that can happen if we're not careful, is that we just tack on missions and outreach as just one other thing that the church does. It's another uh, department in the church. But actually, that's not how church is designed. Church is actually designed so that every single ministry is outward focusing. Every ministry at the church should not just be for those that come to the church and are members. Though that's important, there should also be this outward focus to what we do as a church. So this idea of mission or of witnessing should be built in to every ministry of the church and every aspect of the church. So we want to talk about what that might look like this morning. One of the other temptations that we often think about uh, when it comes to outreach or it comes to witness is we think if there was just one specific way or one specific instance that we could find, then we'll be able to reach everyone with this one method or this one approach to sharing the gospel. And what I want to share this morning is that actually from Acts and from the example of Paul, there are multiple ways that we can think about sharing the gospel and bearing witness. And that in doing so, it's actually very biblical to think about it that way. And this really relates to the other journeys. Remember last time I was here, I talked about what does it mean to bear witness? To bear witness is that you have a particular combination of knowledge and experience. You know something and you have experienced it personally. If you have that combination, you are a good witness to something. And when we think about the three journeys, the upward journey really is primarily about knowledge that we learn more about God. It's one way to think about it. And the the inward journey, the first part of the year, is really about deepening our experience of who God is. So these three journeys fit together very, very well because in the inward journey, we deepen our experience of God. We get to know him more through that experiential journey, through him dealing with all of those things in our hearts and our lives that we want him to deal with as we grow in the gifts and fruits of the Spirit. And then as we uh, look at God and his attributes and this upward journey, we grow in our knowledge of God. And that's kind of a simplistic way to think about it, but I think it helps us then know that as we focus on both the inward journey and the upward journey, we are equipped as witnesses for the outward journey. So let's uh, jump into the first of our chapters for today. And I mentioned we'll be looking at three different chapters in the book of Acts, and we are going to be looking, first of all, at Acts chapter 16. 
And like I said earlier, we're not going to read every single uh, verse, but we are going to um, look at a few key uh, parts, and I'm going to have the scriptures on the screen for you. Um, so Paul was, if you read the second part of Acts, the second half of Acts, it's following Paul's missionary journeys. And those missionary journeys were Paul was going to various uh, regions and various cities, and he was planting churches and starting churches. He was pretty much always going to places where the gospel was brand new, where the gospel had not been heard. Now, there had been rumors of the gospel and rumors of this new Christian way of following Jesus. But Paul was often going into these cities and specifically wanting to see congregations and churches started or churches planted in those cities. And so we want to look at three different situations and cities that he went into. And how did he begin to plant these churches? Because it helps instruct us in ways that we can interact with the culture as a church. So one of the things that's important is to know a little bit about each of these cities. And the city of Philippi, where Paul ends up in, in Acts chapter 16, the city of Philippi was actually a very, very important city uh, at the time. It was named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great, and you may know the name Alexander the Great from history. And uh, it was a very, very wealthy city, and it was under the Roman control. So remember, at this time, it's the Roman Empire. But, the, but specifically, even though this city was outside of Italy, this was directly controlled by the city of Rome, which was a very, very unusual distinction and made this city of Philippi one of the leading cities of its day. In fact, it was so closely aligned with Rome that the city was... Uh, filled with a lot of soldiers who had fought for the Roman Empire, and they had retired, and they had retired to Philippi. So there was a lot of very strong connection with the city of Rome, and there were certain tax and other social advantages that came if you lived in the city of Philippi. So a very leading city. And this is uh, typical of Paul. Paul doesn't shy away from going to cities and to going to places that are central to the culture and central to the region. When he goes out with the gospel, he goes straight to those main places of influence. What's fascinating about the uh, account that we have in Acts chapter 16 about Paul's ministry in Philippi is it focuses on three individuals. And that's what I want to look at this morning, three individuals. It focuses on Lydia, focuses on a slave girl, and it focuses on a jailer. And Luke, very, very intentionally, as he writes these words in Acts chapter 16, wants us to see these three stories and what they tell us about bearing witness. So let's look at the first one. The first one is somebody called Lydia. And Paul goes to the city of Philippi, and on the Sabbath, uh, Paul is with some companions. He says, we went outside the city gate, to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, and she was a worshiper of God. So a couple of things that we can learn from, from these uh, opening verses here of Paul's time in Philippi. Paul would often, coming from a Jewish background and wanting to ensure that the Jews learned uh, about the Messiah, Jesus, he would often go to the synagogue. And you see that happen over and over. And he would talk with Jews, and he would talk with God-fearers. And a God-fearer was somebody who was not born Jewish, but they were very, very sympathetic to the, to the Jewish faith and were, uh, had chosen to embrace the Jewish faith, even though they weren't born into it. And oftentimes, Paul would go to the Jews, and, and he'd go to the synagogue, 
because they had the whole religious and cultural background, right? It was like ground that was already prepared and turned over to receive the seed because they had all of that cultural and religious understanding from the Old Testament. And he would go there and he would oftentimes begin at the synagogue. The problem in Philippi was there was no synagogue. Uh, And what this tells us is that there were less than 10 male Jews in the city of Philippi, because that was the number you needed to start a synagogue. So very, very few Jews in the city. So right away we know that Paul is up against it when it comes to Philippi, because there's no Jewish synagogue, there's there's no basis to reach the city. So he has another plan, and he goes to the river, which uh, outside of the city, and that was, if there was no synagogue, that was where you might expect people to go to worship. That was just a cultural thing in the day. And actually, Paul does find people. And specifically, he finds a group of women who are there worshiping, and he finds one woman in particular, Lydia. And we don't know much about Lydia, except from what we see here. We know where she's from, and we know what she does. And interestingly, Lydia is a businesswoman. She is a businesswoman in her day. And she becomes the leading figure in this opening story of Philippi. And actually, towards the end, we'll see too, she is, after she receives uh, the message, we see that she is somebody who is very, very hospitable to Paul. Because we see in the next verse that Lord opened her heart, this is Lydia's heart, to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. She says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Hospitality, inviting somebody into your home, was a very, very significant thing in Paul's day. It meant that there was a connection, uh, belonging together in community. And so we might expect that Lydia, on the basis of this conversion, becomes, in one sense, the center of the emerging church in the city of Philippi because she can provide a place for that church to meet that's not down by the river. So that's the first story. Paul encounters a woman at the river and her household, and she is a businesswoman. The next person is very, very different. So Paul, after he meets Lydia, he stays in the city of Philippi. And uh, we see from the next verse, once when we were going to the place of prayer, so Paul's in Philippi and they're going back and forth, they're in the city, and they're going back to this place of prayer, We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future, and she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. This is the second person Paul encounters, very different from Lydia. This is a slave girl, we don't know her name, and she was uh, possessed by an evil spirit. And this evil spirit... um, when you would read uh, the, the kind of the cultural accounts and commentaries about what was the spirit like, it was believed that this spirit was a Python spirit, and that was the local kind of um, deity or the local uh, kind of god for that region. And it was believed that this spirit would come on people and would speak through people. So people were almost like ventriloquists, and this uh, spirit would speak through uh, through the person that it uh, possessed. And that's what Luke is telling us here: is that there was a, a girl. And she was not only possessed by the spirit, but she had masters. She had people who owned her. She was a slave. And she would go around and she would um, do fortune telling. And people put a great deal of faith in whatever the spirit said, because they thought it was an authoritative uh, voice speaking into their lives. And if they needed advice, they would go to someone like this girl and say, tell me the future. And the spirit would speak through her. 
So what's interesting is this, this, this spirit is speaking through her and is fo- she's following Paul around and saying, these are servants of the God Most High. They're telling you the way to be saved, right? And you would think that Paul might be thinking, hey, this is interesting, right? These, the spirit is, is bearing witness to Jesus Christ. But Paul gets really mad, right? After a few days of this, right? And you can imagine it be irritating, right? You're just walking along and you have this person who's you know, shouting these words. And Paul is troubled by this because uh, in that context, you know, it might not have been 100% clear that the God most high that she was talking about is Jesus. And it might not be 100% clear what salvation means. And remember, people would go to her for direction from this spirit, and they would go for some type of message that would make them feel better about their lives. And Paul wants it to be very, very clear that there is not the Python God who is in charge of Philippi. He wants to make very clear that it's God who is in charge of Philippi, who is the leading spirit. And so eventually, uh, Paul turns around and he gets so annoyed and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. So Paul stakes a claim in the city of Philippi. There is one God over all, and it's Jesus Christ. And here's the evidence right here. The spirit had to submit to the name of Jesus. And of course, we saw this a lot in the ministry of Jesus himself while he was on earth. Now, this story, if we stopped it right here, has this very happy ending because this girl is delivered and she's the second person of three that we see in this story. But what happens is there's a chain of events that get triggered after this deliverance that brings Paul into this meeting, this encounter with a third person. And what's the chain of events? Well, the chain of events is the owners of this girl have lost their source of income. Right? Without the spirit, this girl is essentially useless to the, to the owners. And so they uh, drag Paul, they get Paul and Silas, his companion, they drag them to the marketplace to face the authorities, and they say, these men are causing uproar, and the bottom line is Paul and Silas are flogged and thrown in jail. Well... That's a, that's a tricky situation if you're starting a church to end up in jail, right? Except that God has a plan. And I remember hearing this story a lot in Sunday school where Paul and Silas are in the stocks. The magistrates told the jailer, make sure to lock them up securely. And it's midnight and they're praising Jesus, right? When you're in the midst of adversity, praising Jesus, it was kind of a lesson that we learned in Sunday school. And what happens there's an earthquake, and the earthquake is so severe, it shakes all of the stocks loose and the doors fling open, and basically all the prisoners are free to leave. So this brings Paul directly into uh, confrontation with the third person in the story, and that's the jailer, the prison guard. Now the prison guard is uh, responsible for the prisoners, and if the prisoners all escape, then what happens to the prison guard? He is in a great deal of trouble, and he is so afraid that he basically wants to kill himself. He wants to end his own life right then and there. And Paul uh, shouts out, don't harm yourself. All of us prisoners, we're still here. And what is the jailer's response? 
He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer has no doubt heard Paul and Silas praising God. He doesn't understand what's happening with this earthquake. Why are all the prisoners still here? Something is happening. And Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. And at that hour in the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. Wow, what a response to the gospel. So three people that Paul meets in the city of Philippi. He meets a businesswoman who was already well on her way to understanding the things of God. She was a God-fearer. The second person, completely different, a slave girl who is um, oppressed by this and possessed by this demonic spirit, who is set free. And finally, we have a jailer and his household who are saved in the midst of incredibly um, just dramatic circumstances. Right when that jailer was at his lowest point, he is reached by the gospel. One other thing that stands out from this account in Philippi is Luke, as he writes this, is very careful to make a couple of big picture points. The first is the gospel is for individual people in their individual lives and in their individual situations. Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer all had very particular individual lives and circumstances, and they were all witnessed to by Paul, and they all received the gospel. So the gospel is for individuals. It's not just for individuals that all look the same. Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer were all very, very different types of people. Luke has handpicked these three stories to tell us in Luke chapter 16. And one of the things he's telling us is the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. It's not just for one particular type of person. And so you can imagine that the church that was started in Philippi had an interesting mix of people, right? You had a slave girl going to church right beside a jailer and his family. You had a businesswoman mixing with a jailer and a slave girl. That's the power of the gospel to create community together. And that's one thing that Paul wants us to see from uh, Acts chapter 16. Let's move on to the second city. Paul from uh, Philippi eventually makes his way to Athens. Now we're moving into Acts chapter 17. And Acts chapter 17 has probably one of the most uh, well-known and most studied parts of the book of Acts. Because Paul goes to Athens and he begins to talk with not just the Jews and the Greeks, or not just the Jews and the God-fearers who were Greeks, but he starts to talk to the Greeks who were around in the city of Athens. Now, Athens, we know about the city of Athens. We still see it today. You can go and visit the, um, the great monuments, and we can still see a lot of the former glory of Athens. Now, Athens at the time of Paul was past its peak. It was kind of on the downward slide, but it still held a great deal of influence and a great deal of uh, especially cultural influence. Athens was the place where all the newest ideas came from. That's where all the newest ideas came from. It was less of a business center. It was much more of an ideas place. If you had a new idea and you went to Athens and the people in Athens bought into your idea, then that gave you huge cultural capital. That meant that you were really a leading thinker in your day. 
So Paul goes to Athens, and actually Paul is kind of waiting for his other companions to meet him there. So the, we get the impression that Paul has a little bit of time on his hands, and he's wandering around the city of Athens. And uh, what is it that he sees when he wanders around the city of Athens? Well, he sees that he was greatly distressed that the city was full of idols. The city is just stocked full of idols. So Paul goes to the synagogue, and he's reasoning with Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And then he would also go to the marketplace and talk to whoever was there. And some of the people that were in the marketplace, so these are, are Greek thinkers, are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and they began to, to debate with Paul. And some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus, and he was preaching about the resurrection. So the imagery here, when they say Paul's kind of a babbler, and what's he talking about? The imagery here is, uh, in, the, in, the, in the original language, the imagery is that Paul is like a bird that goes and picks up a little bit of seed over here, and drops it over here, and picks up another piece of seed here, and drops it here, and it's just like this bird that pecks at seeds and drops it all just kind of randomly. And that's kind of what they were getting at, was this idea of Paul's a babbler. Like, Paul's just, just what's he talking about? It doesn't make any sense. Just little bits of this and that. They couldn't make sense of it. But they were intrigued. And so they decided that they would bring him to this uh, very significant, very important place in the city of Athens called the Areopagus, uh, sometimes translated as Mars Hill. And that was the place to go to, to debate, to, to think about ideas. And so they bring Paul there. And Paul stands up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So we already know, because Luke has told us, that Paul is walking around the city of Athens, and what's his reaction? Paul is distressed. He's actually very distressed because of the level of idolatry in the city of Athens. So Paul goes to the Areopagus. He's standing in front of all of these leading thinkers. And these are the top people to influence in terms of thinking. And he doesn't go in and say, I'm greatly distressed at all of your idols. You are clearly on the wrong path. Uh, what does he do instead? He actually acknowledges. He said, oh, uh, I can see that you're actually very religious. And I can see that um, you have lots of idols, and in fact, you even have one to an unknown god. And what did that mean? Well, the Greeks had idols to all sorts of different gods, right? They tried to think of everything to make sure that they had covered all of their bases. But they set up this one altar to an unknown god just in case there was one out there that they didn't know about. And Paul shows up, and he says... This altar to an unknown God, I'm actually going to tell you who that unknown God is, just so now you know who that unknown God is. And uh, once I do that, then, um, then you will know, and as we'll see uh, here, he says, he says uh, then you're kind of without excuse in one sense, very reminiscent of Romans chapter 1. Because Paul says later in this chapter, he says, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so here he's talking, obviously, of Christ. And what does Paul do? 
Paul in Acts chapter 17, and as he's at Mars Hill or the Areopagus, he actually uses a lot of their own culture to then introduce the gospel, to introduce the true and living God. He talks about a number of different things to challenge their culture, even while he's kind of using it to talk about the gospel. Um, the Greek uh, thinking, they thought they were a very, very uh, particular, uh, pure uh, breed and line of people, and uh, they often thought of themselves as kind of distinct uh, from other cultures and nations. And Paul makes it clear that um, the Greeks are, in a sense, like everyone else. They've kind of come from the same, the same source and the same origin. So that would have challenged their culture. Uh, Paul also is very clear that uh, even though the Athenians, even though these thinkers, they kind of have an inkling that there's another god out there they don't know about, uh, Paul said, yeah, that's good to have that inkling, but now that I'm telling you about the true and living God, you no longer can claim that you're ignorant. You now are responsible to make a decision. There's also very interesting language, verse 27. Paul talks about how God is near to people. We have the sense that God is omnipresent. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny in a sense to think about these Athenians and these philosophers are trying to seek truth. They're trying to understand the world. And God in one sense is near them, and yet they're in complete darkness because he is unknown to them. And Paul is there to bear witness to God. Now, what do we learn from this? There's lots and lots of ways we could unpack this further, but very big picture. This is a very, very different story than what we see in Philippi. Remember, in Philippi, we have three individuals. Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. When Paul goes to Athens, he's not working at that individual level. He's working at a very, very high level and thinking about culture and cultural influence. Paul, when he goes to Athens, is making the case that Christianity can go toe-to-toe with the leading ideas of the day and can actually make some very, very important and fundamental ideas that it can present them in new and compelling ways and help us to understand life. And Paul, in some ways, keeps it quite basic. He says God is the creator, he's the sustainer, and God is sovereign over all nations, and he's the father of all people. These are very, very well established categories of thinking in the Old Testament. But of course, the Greeks would not know the Old Testament background, and so Paul uses their own thinking, uses their own culture, but he still wants to make that same point, that God is creator, that God is sustainer, that he is sovereign over all nations, and that he is father over all people. Paul talks about the importance of knowing Christ Jesus, but Paul, as he bears witness here, he does it in a way where he is both Um, he's not shy about sharing the gospel and bearing witness to Christ, but he's also pretty humble about it. He doesn't go in full charge, but he tries to seek an area of common ground with the Athenians. He tries to find aspects of culture where they could both start from, where they might agree with each other. You're very religious. I see that you have this hunger to know about God. You have this altar even to an unknown God. Wow, how thoughtful that you would, as part of your religious system, even think that there's another God out there. You've left the door open. And Paul is is gracious in that sense, but he also is very clear to bear witness to Christ. 
Okay, finally we turn to Acts chapter 18. Paul from Athens goes to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them, and every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Here we have the same pattern that Paul would employ regularly. He would go to the synagogue and reason with Jews and reason with Greeks who were God-fearers. It's interesting, there's a little bit of history behind this, but uh, uh, Claudius, the uh, emperor, had expelled Jews from Rome, and so they went to various places in the Roman emperor, and we can see that that was the case for uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And they're also tent makers. Paul is a tent maker. And so they decide to set up shop together. Uh, Corinth was another major city, and actually was at a cross, like where it's situated, there were lots of um, people that would come to do trade in Corinth. It was uh, very much a crossroads for business and for uh, lots and lots of different things, and it actually was very, very prosperous, and it was known for being um, a little bit like how we would think of Las Vegas today, right? Kind of a very licentious city in many ways. It was known for being rich, and it was known as a place um, that... Uh, from our perspective, we might say it was a pretty immoral place. And you see from First and Second Corinthians that Paul had to work those Christians through some, some significant moral issues. And Paul begins his ministry in partnership with this uh, Jewish couple. And Paul was strategic in being a tent maker. See, near Corinth, every other year, uh, there were these uh, games that weren't quite at the same prestigious level as the Olympic games that we're familiar with. Uh, but these games were... Um, held every other year, and they were held near uh, Corinth. And uh, lots and lots of people would come to take part in these games, and they would need places to stay, and they would come and order tents. And so Paul, by uh, being a tent maker and setting up shop with these uh, two other uh, Jews, actually gave himself every opportunity to, to make his home in Corinth and to interact with people from lots and lots of different places. Because people would come to Corinth for these games, and then they would disperse and go back home. So Paul is very, very strategic in setting up his business in a way that allowed him to uh, make his home in Corinth. And we see that um, Paul actually stayed for quite some time. And as Paul is witnessing, he encounters opposition from the Jews. So he goes to the Jews, but the Jews actually get very, very upset with him uh, witnessing about Christ. And so Paul goes literally right next door and starts witnessing to the Gentiles. And we begin to see that some people come to faith. One night, uh, the Lord speaks to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid and keep on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So God encourages Paul in this vision. And so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. So Paul's in Corinth. He's working as a tent maker. The Jews have opposed him. He's reaching the Gentiles. And he is seeing some people come to faith. Well, what happens is the Jews don't let up. They actually go to the local official and they try to get that official to, uh, to basically take care of Paul for them. And it's, very, it's kind of almost funny in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 18 because the Jews bring Paul and they say, oh, he's teaching all of this stuff that's contrary to the law. And it says right as Paul got up to speak to essentially defend himself, the, the, cons, like the local magistrate basically says, you know, this is all about your laws and your language and your customs. Take care of this yourselves doesn't want anything to do with it. And so Paul is free 
to continue with his uh, ministry in Corinth. And what we see from the example in Corinth is that Paul stays for a lot longer. He sets himself up in a way where he is financially able to be part of the local community and where he's able to meet people from lots of different places and where he's able to really help the church flourish because he stays in person. This is uh, one of the instances where Paul stays a lot longer than he normally would. So what are some things that we can learn from these three examples? Well, first of all, Paul doesn't have the same uh, method or the same approach. We don't see the same outcomes in some ways in each of these three cities, right? In Philippi, there's three individuals. In Athens, it's a very, very big picture. And in Corinth, we see that Paul sets himself up as a business person, interacting with the local um, society and the local economy as a way to bear witness. One of the themes that you see in all three places is that some people received the gospel and other people opposed the gospel. And that's a pattern that we see throughout the, the book of Acts. That's a pattern that we see that uh, Christ himself talked about. That some people will hear and believe and others will hear and they won't repent and they might even actively oppose us as Christians. And remember, Christ reminded us that they're not in one sense opposing us, they're opposing the one who sends us in mission, and that's Christ himself. In many ways, the gospel is dangerous and it's different in each of these situations. The gospel is dangerous to the thinking, it's dangerous to the culture, it's dangerous for those who hear it in one sense, right? It challenges existing systems in the culture, it challenges existing ways of thinking, and it challenges each of us at the core of who we are as individuals. See, the gospel isn't really interested in you becoming the best version of you that you can become. The gospel isn't really interested in that until you go through the way of the cross. Until you uh, submit and surrender to Christ. If you think about baptism, we symbolically, in baptism, uh, die with Christ and are risen to new life. And the gospel message is very clear that if we're uh, to truly flourish as individuals, we have to die first and become new people. So in that sense, the gospel is very dangerous to us because it challenges us to our core, that we can't keep going the way we were going. We have to make a radical change. We see that people got really upset with Paul as he ministered, right? Often it was the Jews in this situation. Uh, but other people would get upset with Paul. He even went to prison in, uh, in Philippi. So we see that the gospel is dangerous in that it challenges us at the individual level, but it also challenges ways of thinking in, our, in the culture. The gospel is also different because... We see that in Athens. We see that in different accounts here. We see that the gospel is kind of seen like, oh, that's a different message. That's something new. And it took people a while sometimes to respond to it, whereas other people responded kind of instinctively to that message. The gospel is different because it's such a radical message. It's not a message that says you can get to to meet God just through your own effort. It's not a message that says, if you just know enough things about God that you can get to enter into eternal life. It's such a different message because it insists that the only way 
to enter into eternal life and to know God is to surrender and is to fully commit your life to the lordship of someone else. Well, that message is very different. That's always been different in every culture and it will continue to be different because our hardwiring and our instinct is to do things ourselves, to rely on ourselves and to be our own authority in life. And we're constantly submitting ourselves to the gospel, which says that Christ is Lord and that we live under his lordship and we surrender to him daily. So as the church, we go out in mission and as we are in witness, we bring a message that in some ways cuts against culture. However, Paul shows us, especially in Athens, that there can be lots of times when we find that common ground with our culture from which to bear witness to Christ. I think one of my favorite examples of this process of finding common ground within our culture as a basis to witness is probably uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City in Manhattan. He's a Presbyterian pastor, and he's been writing uh, many books over the last few years to talk about his approach. And he basically, a number of years, about 20 years ago, he's a Presbyterian pastor, and he, was, he wanted to go to Manhattan, one of the hardest places in our culture to reach, full of young professionals, skeptics, people who are not necessarily, we might imagine, thinking about the things of God. And he intentionally wanted to connect with culture as a Christian, as a pastor, to help people wrestle through the things of God. And so he set up this pattern where he'd preach, they'd do church, he would preach, and then afterwards he would just stick around and do Q&A. And so after a while, people heard about this and they would come to his church, right? And people would hear his message and then they'd do a Q&A and people would ask him all sorts of really difficult questions about the Christian faith. Skeptics, atheists, Christians, who were people who were raised in the church as Christians but had walked away for whatever reason. And out of that approach to ministry, he has uh, written quite a, quite a lot to help other churches understand because he saw that there was such a deep hunger in people's lives for the gospel. People want to know what it is to have meaning and purpose in life. And just like Paul sought that common ground with the Athenians, how can we also find common ground with those around us from which to share the gospel, to bear witness to Christ? Sometimes I think we're tempted, we think if we share any type of common ground with somebody who is not like us, we're tempted, I think, at times to believe that that means we affirm everything about that person, everything about their lifestyle, everything about who they are. But the gospel teaches us that we don't have to think like that. We can meet people in those areas of common ground and yet still hold very, very true to who we are in our witness to Christ. And we don't have to accept absolutely everything about that other person or that other group. What are ways in our culture, what are ways right here in Vandalia that we can as a church find common ground with others in our community? What are the shared things that as a community we as a church and as Christians hold in common with those around us. And you'll know those things much better than I would because you are here, you are grounded, you're rooted in this community. What are the things that you're hearing that people are concerned about? And is there a Christian way to think about those things, to think about those issues? Is there a way to bear witness to Christ through the values, through the ways of thinking about life that already exist here? 
sometimes the gospel brings us into confrontation with others and with values. But other times the gospel aligns very, very well with things that we see in our culture and we see in our world. And there's a way that we can bear witness to Christ in both instances. So we see a variety of ways to bear witness from these chapters. We can look to Paul as an example. And as we continue as a church to think through this, we can continue on this outward journey. So let me pray for you as I close this morning that you would continue to grow in this area as you bear witness to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you again this morning as the true and living God, the creator, the sustainer of all things. You are the father of all people. You are all that we have heard about this morning. And as we seek to bear witness to you, Lord God, we ask that you would sustain us. We ask that you would give us all that we need to find those ways to reach our culture and to reach people with the truth of the gospel. We see this morning, God, that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach, but that you can shape our words, you can shape our actions, and you can shape our approach so that it best meets our culture. God, would you lead us to meet the people in our, in our, in our region, our area? God, who are the Lydias, the slave girls and the jailers, God, that you want to bring into our lives? that we might bear witness to you and that they might come into relationship with you. God, what are the ideas and the leading people in our culture and in our region that we can interact with? We can find common ground and we can bear witness to the truth of who you are. What are the ways, God, that we can become so integrated into the culture, integrated into the, the flow of a community, just like Paul was a tent maker? God, that we can make a difference as we participate in the local life of a community. Help us, God. Give us wisdom. Pray you would bless every person and every family here today. May they continue to grow in their faith, to love you more deeply, God. And I pray that you would bless each one. In your name we pray. Amen.